You're listening to sermon audio from Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton, Tennessee. For more information on how you can get connected with PBC, please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 6, verse 6. We're going to read verses 6 through 10 in just a moment. Galatians chapter 6, 6 through 10. We're at the point uh, where it would be good for me to just stop in our journey through the book of Galatians and kind of do a checkup of where we're at. We're so deep down in it, we need to kind of zoom back out. This is six chapters uh, that Paul writes to the Galatian new believers who were being led astray from grace back to the law by these Judaizers. They must have got wind of their new conversions. And so they went into the, all these four cities where these churches had been planted along the southern part of Galatia. And so Paul writes this letter to combat that. And so chapters one and two are the source which prove uh, the, the gospel's authenticity. These are his arguments in the book of Galatians. Chapters 3 and 4 are his defense, which proves the gospel's superiority over the law. And then chapters 5 and 6 are the impact. That's what we're in right now. And those prove the gospel's opportunity, the freedom we have in Christ. So we could say in another way, the first two chapters are Paul's personal biography. The second two chapters are Paul's uh, doctrinal basis. And then the third uh, section, these last two chapters, chapters 5 and 6, are his practical bearing. So chapters 5 and 6 explain the practical outcome of freedom in Christ where the rubber meets the road. And Paul's about to land the Galatian plane. I kind of think of it, I think of Galatians 6, verses 6 through 10 as like putting the flaps down. You can see the runway out in front of you, and you know, you're, you're coming in, your final uh, descent or whatever, and you put, your, you put the tires down, you, 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 you put your landing gear down. And that's what this is about. And he, and he does this with a simple illustration to connect all his arguments, all right? And what's that illustration? It's one we're pretty familiar with. It's sowing and reaping. That's really what this section's about. And I want us to read this together. Galatians 6, 6 through 10. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Piper and Baptist Church supports uh, a church plant called Risen Savior Ministries. I've already mentioned that. And Doug Williams is the pastor there, and I've asked him to pray over our service this morning via video. Good morning, Piperton Baptist Church. I'm Doug Williams, pastor of Risen Savior Ministry, and this is my beautiful wife, Carol. And Good morning to everybody. Well, we just wanted to drop by and say thank you one and all. We want to thank you for how you are such a blessing to us. I want to thank your pastor, Wint. He has been such a, a blessing to me. He is so helpful and so gracious with me. I want to thank Brother Tony and Sister Trish because they have been awesome working with us and helping us out too. And we want to thank each and every member of the Piperton Baptist Church congregation. You guys are awesome, man. We're just, we just thank God for you. And if it's okay with you, I want to just pray for a quick moment and pray for your service for today. 
Father, I just want to thank you for this body, this part of your body of Christ. And I just ask that you show yourself in a mighty way today in their worship service. I pray your anointing on Pastor Wynn as he brings a message that comes straight from you, Lord God. And I pray that as you've promised, the seeds of your word will follow fertile ground in all of these people's lives and you'll be glorified and they'll be edified and built up even more to a level of spiritual maturity as they go forth and spread the gospel throughout the neighborhood and the world. We love you and we thank you for this relationship that you've created with us and we just ask you to continue doing what only you, the Most High God, can do. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We pray you guys have a wonderful service today and we're looking forward to being able to see you face to face in the near future. Love you. See you soon. Some of y'all will see them this afternoon. And by the way, if you don't know him, he's actually retired from FedEx. He was pretty high up at FedEx and had a lot of responsibilities there and felt called to ministry after. So for you older folks in there, mid, you're, that's a good midlife crisis to have right there to become a pastor. And uh, he actually lost his wife about 11 years ago. She died and God gave him a new wife. And uh, he's, she's a sweetheart. So anyway... Uh, Back into uh, the scriptures here, Paul's been sharing practical outcomes from the freedom uh, the grace of Christ gives, but outcomes need to be tested to prove their value. We talked about this last week, and this is interesting to me because chapter 5 was really about testing our character traits, but chapter 6 is more about testing our work, right, the things we actually do. So what's the primary tool Paul used for character testing in Galatians chapter 5? I'll give you a hint. You can sing it. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Remember that? All right? So Paul uses fruit, mostly internal character traits, as a spiritual litmus test of our relationship with Christ. These are the fruits that grow in the spiritual orchard of God's kingdom. So chapter 5 is fruit. But then it's like Paul zooms out to explain the test for chapter 6. Like does anyone wonder how the fruit tree got there in the first place? So he uses the illustration of sowing and reaping. He summarizes all his thoughts under the example of a farmer. He associates what's growing in the garden, uh, uh, the ground of our garden with the seeds we're putting in it. It's another way to test uh, and chart a path for where we're headed in our faith walk, right? And it's an example, by the way, that will endure until Christ returns. It's one of the oldest tests in the book. You know, lots of folks today love to talk about global warming and the self-inflicted destruction of earth, right? And to be clear, I'm for recycling and against oil spills, all right? But people have their theories, so some have proposed theories. Listen, friend, I have a promise from God's word. And it was given to Noah when he stepped off the ark, Genesis 8:22, while the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. You can talk all you want about global warming, but it'll never be global until Jesus returns. All right? As a matter of fact, this is one of the strongest statements I've read in Scripture lately. Jeremiah 33, 25, thus says the Lord, if, this is how preposterous this is, if I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed order of heaven and earth, 
then I'll reject the offspring of Jacob and David my servant and will not choose one of his offsprings to rule over the offspring of Abraham. But he's not going to do that because he continues and said, I will restore their fortunes and have mercy on them. He's saying what I intend to do to redeem all you knuckleheads is as certain as the natural order of the world. And what's part of that natural order? Sowing and reaping, seed time and harvest. Harvest, sowing and reaping is as certain as the saving promise of Jesus's birth, life, death, resurrection and, and ascension and return. You know, uh, forensic files, they, they always like to throw you off, you know. Uh, they'll, you, you're good an hour into it, you know, and uh, they'll give you circumstantial evidence about the murder. And they'll give you, you know, eyewitness testimony and trace evidence, and they'll go on and on and on until about the last five minutes, if you ever watch one of these. And in the last five minutes, they'll go, oh, y'all remember that DNA evidence we mentioned at the very beginning for a very brief moment so that you would forget about it until the very end, which is really the only vital thing about this entire show, right? Remember that? Well, it came back positive for the assailant and the victim, and we've captured him, and he's going to do two life sentences. The end, right? Thanks. Why? You know, we just spent an hour of fluff, right? Just skip all that other stuff and get to the DNA evidence. And so Paul says, I'll wrap up this dateline with a test that's as old as the earth, sowing and reaping. Summer and winter, springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above, join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Harvest, sowing, and reaping isn't just a witness to God's faithfulness, it's a witness to our own and Paul mentions three types of harvest in Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. The first of these is a harvest in sharing, particularly with teachers. Now, Galatians 6, 6 says, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Verse 10, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Paul demonstrates the litmus test of our character in Christ with the good works of generosity. So I want us to see sharing through three lenses here. First, sharing as a command. This word share is actually the first word in this Greek sentence. And they did that in Greek sometimes to show emphasis on that particular word. So they put share at the beginning of the sentence. But that's not the only emphasis because it's in a present imperative, which means it's a command, not only a command, it's a command we should practice as a habit. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but all giving commands in the Bible are really based on emphasizing dependence on the Holy Spirit, right? The manna in the wilderness that God would send was proving, trust me, I'll give you this day our daily bread. He doesn't say give us next month. It says our day. So we should obey God's commands regardless of the outcome, right? So a command to testify of Jesus, if y'all are tracking with this thought process, could could land you under threat of life, threat of death. People around the world right now are, are threatened. If they proclaim Christ, they, they'll be killed, right? So the command to share means there'll be times when we're, we'll have to sacrifice to be able to obey that command, right? God's word doesn't say, have faith in God when you're in a good mood. Have patience uh, when you're on the beach with a pina colada in your hand. 
right? Have patience only on a Friday after 5 p.m. It doesn't say be, you know, share when you got lots of extra money in the bank. Then you can be generous. And the command to share includes financial generosity to those who teach. And I'll just tell you, I don't like to talk about this at all. If anybody knows me, you know I hate to talk about this because I know some dadgum visitor has walked in and here I am talking about money and they're going to punch whoever they're with. And say, See, dadgum, and I told you, these preachers only talk about money. No, I don't, friend. You come 10 weeks in a row and you'll see that. I do not talk about money much, but it is in the scripture and so I'm bound to talk about it. Jesus sent the disciples out in Matthew 10, 10, he told them not to take extra stuff. Verse 10, no bag for your journey no t- or two tunics or sandals or staff for the laborers deserve, laborer deserves his food. Meaning the people you teach will provide for your needs and you'll depend more fully on me. And by the way, that word for taught, those you have taught, who have you've taught the gospel. In Greek, it's the word katecheo, which is from the word kata, meaning down, and echeo, which is where we get our our word in English for echo for, or sound. So katekeo uh, means uh, to sound down into the ears. It means to inform or instruct others verbally. So that's who we're talking about. First Timothy five seventeen. let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. And I, I, I'm preaching to the choir here because I'm, I'm supported financially and blessed beyond compare. But some of you will leave here and go to other churches and you need to hear this word. And let me say, from the bottom of my heart and as a witness before God, I would serve you for free. And I really do mean that. Uh, I, you do financially support me, right? But if you didn't, I already had a call to come here. Vicki and I actually discussed it on our way to our final interview five years ago in 2018. We're like, well, what if they don't give us enough money to live where in the schools that we want to be in for our kids? When I said, well, we'll just be prepared to tell them we, we won't be able to come in every day of the week. Right, we'll have to do these other things, and I'm and that's okay. You, I don't have to do that, but I just want you to know I don't serve for money. And by the way, you're not my boss. I hate to break it to you. You could fire me. You could do that, but I, you, you're not my boss. God's my boss, which is a much higher accountability than you. <laughs> and so I serve Him, and I serve Him with whether I get money or not. And I'm blessed to serve you. And to do that more fully because you support me. But with every freedom comes the abuse of that freedom. So secondly, we see sharing as an abuse. It's a command uh, to share, not a command to receive. Just because God commands it doesn't mean we should demand it. I want to give you three abuses here. One, a greedy pastor who bargains for his own support. I have no problem with in the secular world with people jockeying for higher pay. Good for you, all right? But that don't fly in ministry. Matter of fact, we have pastors here that are ordained elders who don't receive any money because they get their support from other jobs, right? But by all means, provide for the needs of your pastor unless they have those jobs, but don't let him dictate your providing. Um, if a man asks to give, he wants to share with us his his financial needs he's he's welcome to do that but otherwise keep quiet 
<laughs> Matter of fact, one time I was a student pastor in Virginia and I was booking a speaker for a camp, a, a camp I was putting together. And I had gotten this guy's name. Oh, he's such a good speaker. I called him, got to talking to him about halfway into the conversation. Hadn't even finished telling him about the event. And he said, so how much you offering? Dude, I about turned, if he could have seen my face, I thought I handled it pretty well. I didn't cuss. I, I just said, uh, well, yeah, we'll talk to you later. How about nothing? Because you ain't coming. <laughs> and he didn't. He didn't come. Uh, let me just add that even good pastors, really good godly men, can, can let the love of money creep in and distract them from their purpose of their calling. Be generous, but don't trust a greedy pastor. The next is never confuse biblical sharing for communistic or socialistic taking. Barnabas owned his own land in Scripture, and he chose of his own volition, led by the Spirit, to sell that land and lay the proceeds at the apostles' feet. Ananias and Sapphira tried to cheat and lie about theirs, and Paul was like, you didn't have to do, Peter was like, you didn't have to do that. You didn't have to sell it at all. They're trying to mimic Paul, you know, the praise that Barnabas got. They saw, you know, Barnabas came and gave a great offering. People were like, gosh, can you believe they did that? And then he wanted to mimic that and get the attention. Now, Paul wasn't afraid to inform the churches of their financial needs. We're going to do that at the turn of the year. You know, Jimmy and the finance have been working on the budget. And I don't have any problems telling you about the needs of our church. We're a family. So occasionally we sit down and talk about our financial needs. That's not weird. But I'm not inviting, a, you know, and I don't want to invite a political debate, but if you want to talk more about biblical references against communism and socialism uh, and taking in scripture and giving, because a lot of people say, oh, it was the community. See, they, everyone gave to everyone has had need. Yeah, they gave, they didn't take. All right, difference. Number three, a third abuse, withholding generosity out of frustration. Uh, friend, we have all given to governments and to churches and even bought things at stores that we don't particularly agree with fully. All right. Withholding tithes and offerings out of disagreement with leaders is wrong. Or if you don't agree with the direction of the church, if you don't agree with the direction, then don't go to that church. Even if it's this one, I'm OK with that. If, if the Holy Spirit leads you elsewhere. Right. But don't. But saying I don't give because I don't agree with something or I'm offended by someone. Well, that's bargaining with the command of God, and you're on dangerous ground when you do that. Sharing as a command, sharing as an abuse, and third, sharing as a relationship. We share more than money with each other, right? It's a relationship with the ones doing the teaching and the hearing, and especially within the household of faith, verse 10. That word for share is koinonio, and it also implies some kind of joint partnership and interest. It conveys the idea of sharing equally. Matter of fact, the noun koinonia means fellowship. It's the same word used in a marriage contract where the husband and wife agree to a joint participation in the necessities of life. The key word there is partnership. Y'all have heard of the woman uh, who was getting her portrait made? And she told the artist, she said, look, I want you to put a 10-carat diamond ring in the picture on my hand. And I want you to put a gold bracelet studded with diamonds and jewels on my right wrist. On my left wrist, I want a beautiful tennis bracelet. On, around my neck, I want a gorgeous necklace full of jewels and diamonds, right? I want a ruby brooch. And, and the artist was confused. He said, I don't understand what you're saying. You don't, you don't have any of those things. She said, I know. 
but I know if I die before my husband, that rascal's gonna go out and marry someone right away. And I want that new woman to go crazy looking for all that jewelry. <laughs> I don't think that's the kind of uh, sharing or partnership Paul was talking about. MacArthur says, share koinonio in all good things can refer to all the noble, moral, spiritual excellencies that he is learning. You build them up by sharing back and forth all the good, excellent, moral truths that flow out of the process of teaching. And I would just add that the gospel is also something that we share in. You meet people from other parts of the world, and, if, and they, they're not relatives or anything, but they're closer than a brother because they have this bond in the gospel. And all disciple makers, men and women, are mutually sanctifying one another. Listen, a teacher can't teach unless he's got a student. You gotta have a hearer. So there's a reciprocal relationship. Students build their teachers because the teachers are, are learning and studying and then the students are learning as well. Well, there's a harvest of sowing and reaping and sharing, especially with our teachers. And second, there's a harvest in planning, especially for heaven. Galatians 6, 7 through 8, do not be deceived. God's not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Those are two fairly drastic differences, don't you think? Right? You can have corruption versus eternal life. And that word for corruption, it's not like this is the difference between a small corner of heaven versus a penthouse suite in heaven. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about corruption, which literally means decomposition, to be in the state of death, headed toward death. Or we could be in the state of eternal life. Big choice. By the way, laws that are fundamental and unchanging are called immutable. So when we talk about the immutable attributes of God or immutable laws of God, they're the unchanging laws of God. And one of those is in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So there's not a sin that anyone has ever committed that will not be shed by someone's blood, either their own in hell for eternity or Jesus is on the cross. Those are the two options, all right? It's a fundamental law, just like the law of gravity. You don't have to believe in it, friend but you're susceptible to it. It affects you. It's fundamental to our life on earth. Well, one of the fundamental facts of the spiritual life is that we reap what we sow. So just like a farmer, we need to take steps to assure that our harvest is good seed, not corrupt seed. And plans are vital to a good harvest. So I wanna give you three steps to a good harvest that these verses reveal. Step one is selection. The kind of harvest we reap is fully determined in advance by the kind of seed we sow. When my kid goes to the edge of our steps upstairs and drops a bouncy ball on the floor below, right? That bounce, that, the, the question is not whether the ball will drop when he lets go of it. Gravity, the law of gravity is going to take care of that. And the makeup of the floor and that ball will determine how high that ball bounces off of it. What my kids do determine when they drop those bouncy balls off the steps is when to let go and where to let go. You're responsible for the seeds you sow and where you drop them and the kind of seeds you drop. We choose what to plant and where. God is responsible for the rest. God will not be mocked. It means you can sow corruption and pretend to reap something different but if something else other than corruption grows out of the ground of your corrupt seed, then God will be mocked because he's not going to do that. 
And by the way, for a believer to think otherwise is actually an insult and mockery to their own spiritual intellect, right? Job 4 verse 8 says, As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Hosea 8 verse 7, For they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Do not be deceived. And by the way, that word for do not be deceived is actually a command followed by this intense word, mock. You know what mocking there means? It means to thumb your nose at God. To assume that I can stick an apple seed in the ground and an orange tree will grow is mockery. To assume the flesh will reap the spirit is the same. This is fixed, it's immutable, it's an unchanging law of the harvest, so we need to decide which seed to sow. The seed of the spirit or the seed of the flesh. Eternal life giving seed or decaying corrupt seeds of death. Step one in Paul's plan, select a seed. Step two, sowing, sow the seed. If a farmer wants a harvest, he's got to drop that seed somewhere, right? No seed, no harvest. There's an innate responsibility we all bear in sowing, right? I can yell at a seed. I can put a seed in the ground and say, hey, get up, come on. I can walk around. I can march around the seed. I can have sacrifices. Some countries have sacrifices to the fertility gods to try to get that seed to grow. You ain't going to get it to grow by yelling at it. But you do have to plant it. D.L. Moody was attending a convention uh, in Indianapolis. And it was a convention on mass evangelism, reaching the lost. And before the convention, about an hour or two before, he called Ira Sankey. Now, this was a different era where people would sing on the streets and things like that. He called Ira Sankey, he's a famous uh, singer, and he had him get up on a thing and sing outside this convention center, and all these people gathered. And D.L. Moody shared with him just a little bit and invited them all into this convention center because the, the, the training for mass evangelism hadn't started yet. They all come in, he shares the gospel with them, and then, and then as he's wrapping up, the people for the conference on learning how to reach people with the gospel, they, they start flooding in the doors. And he s stops the crowd and he says, hey, uh, now we must close as the brethren of the convention wish to come and discuss the topic, how to reach the masses. <laughs> he, was, he was demonstrating live to all those convention goers the difference between talking about it and being about it, right? Select the type of seed that leads to eternal life, then put it in the ground. Step three is saturation. I'm fully convinced that we don't reap great harvest because we don't sow much seed. And why am I convinced of that? It's not my thought. It's 2 Corinthians 9 verse 6 that says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap Bountifully. So if we re weave all these three steps together, we are farmers, dun, 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 right? And we must select, sow, and saturate the ground if we want a bumper crop. There was a man who told a true story one time of how he spent lots of summers in, in Maine in a little town called Flagstaff. And we have a picture of this road, I believe, here. There it is, just hold right there. And this, they were planning to build a dam and a lake would form where this town 
now sits. This town's not there anymore. And all the, you know, because of, you know, because they were going to flood it, all the improvements and the repairs in the town had stopped, right? I mean, who wants to paint a house or fix a shutter or change a light bulb on a front porch if they're going to destroy the whole city in about six weeks? But they said the effect on the town was dreary because everyone just started letting things go because, you know, they were going to flood it. And their attitudes changed, and it was just a depressed place. And someone said, when there's no faith in the future, there's no power in the present. And you can see this next picture here. Sure enough, it happened. There's the house, fine home of May. I don't know what that name says, but this next one. And there's that house when it's, they started flooding it. Friend, what's your outlook on your good works? Do you have a plan for God's eternal harvest of good works in your life? Or are you just, you know, letting things go? Not going to turn out that great anyway. Because you do not value the works of your faith. Church, let me just encourage you to make a plan for sowing eternity in good works. The right seed sown plentifully will reap an eternity of earthly and heavenly benefits. There's a harvest in sharing. There's a harvest in planning. And third, there's a harvest in doing good, especially in church. Galatians 6, 9, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. So then as we have opportunity... Let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Paul gives three encouragements for continuing to do good, and I'll go through these quickly. Number one, wait on the good to develop. This isn't the kind of, of patience we're talking about in traffic. This is the kind of patience a farmer has. He plants, and then he waits. I see posts all the time of parents and their little babies and then them in third grade and ninth grade and graduating. We just had our daughter graduate with her master's in biblical counseling. We made a fast track to North Carolina. By the way, can I say this? I'm going to say it. We got a second grandchild on the way. Not Shiloh's, but uh, Elijah and Becky are having another baby. So, yes, as a matter of fact, they vote on them today during the service down in Mississippi, which could move them 10 hours closer to us. All right? I don't want to usurp the Holy Spirit's plan, but I know what I want. And I'm telling God what I want. I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want. I want a grandkid close to home. All right? So, I see this all the time in parents. They have, they have kids and they're like, yeah. And it, what do they say in all those posts? They grow up so fast. Right? So, they've demonstrated patience because in due season, I had stages in my life where my parents were like, I don't know about this, right? But you just keep praying. And then if, you're, if your kids are still breathing, there's still hope. Why can't we apply that to the harvest? We have parenting habits. Let's have harvest habits. I think Paul's saying in Galatians 5 and 6, sow a character, reap a thought. Sow a thought, reap an act. Reap, sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a future. That's why Chapters 5 and 6 kind of go hand in hand. The character of the fruit of the Spirit with the habit of sowing good works. If Galatians 5 is talking about the Spirit, then Galatians 6 is talking about sowing it. Right? Wait for good. Second, look for opportunity. This word planning is obviously the most 
proactive way to look for opportunity, but this is more than just an, than just, um, it's really an attitude. It's an attitude that constantly looks for and is aware of the needs of others, right? I know many in this church who are models of this. You know, you have your weekly ministries that you're part of. You have your planned opportunities. I mean, you have your planned opportunities, but then you have your other, your things that pop up, opportunities to serve, opportunities to give. Sowing good should be planned, but not turned off like a nine to five job. Second Timothy 4.2 is an example of this. The root word for opportunity is kairos, and it's used twice here. Once in Galatians 6, 9, for season or time, the word opportunity is literally kairos. It means time, right? And then in verse 10, it's used as an opportunity or an occasion. One scholar said that the idea of kairos is that God gives each believer opportunities. Each new day brings its open doors, its vast potentials. It behooves believers to live in such a way that we're sensitive to when God gives us one of those kairos opportunities. Because when, it's, when it passes, it's gone. So wait, be on the lookout, and third, favor. And I'll just end with this, favor the faithful. Yes, we should do good to all, but Galatians 6.10 says, especially to those who are of the household of faith. I love what the ESV says here. It says, as Jesus made clear in Matthew 6.33, the Christian's primary allegiance is to the kingdom of God, with God as our heavenly father, rather than to friends, the workplace, school, sports, or to anything else, even earthly families. You can read this. Matthew 6, verse 9. Matthew 12, verse 50. Matthew 8, verse 21. And I think this is not only eternal in effect, because we're building up the family of God, which Jesus died to create. We're the bride of Christ and any efforts to build it up is, is eternal and good, right? Are eternal and good. But I also think within the church, there's a higher accountability. I think one of the reasons he says, especially to those of the household of faith, is because outside the church, you, you may not know a person, but within the church, you can kind of discern needs better. Does that make sense? We don't, we're not just helping RSM. We know them. We kind of know their needs. They're looking for a church home right now, a, lo a better location. And we kind of know their backgrounds. And, and so we are giving to them is, uh, is stewardly. It's not just throwing money at a beggar. It's knowing what a beggar's real needs are, right? Not to say that they're beggars, but it's difficult to discern the needs of those you don't know. But within a family of faith, there's a natural accountability. So, hey, church, listen, let me just end here. How about this? While we wait for Christ, how about we be about good works? It sounds, that sounds simple, but if you don't chart a plan to do it, you ain't going to do it. If you don't get up in the morning and make a list, what good deeds will I do today? You need to make a plan. We just had a conference, a Problem of Evil conference, and we started months out with a plan to do that. We planned the night of worship, the food that we're going to, we made plans. What are your plans? Have plans, not just the plans to serve the church on a faithful basis, but also the, be ready, looking for opportunities as the needs come up. We tried, Vicki and I, and this is just an example. I don't think we're by any means saints of God that are perfect in this area. I'm going to not start a fire yet, um, electric one. Uh, but Vicki and I put money aside sometimes, and we, we want to have liquid cash so that we're ready to give if something should pop up other than our regular giving. So anyway, just let me encourage you in that. Why don't you stand? I want to pray for us today. God, we love you. We praise you. 
And we want to be generous people. I thank you for those that have already given to Lottie Moon and those that give faithfully to this church to keep the doors open, to keep kids learning the gospel, uh, the PLC, and all the ministries that flow out of this place. We're grateful. We're grateful to those that, uh, that donated this land and uh, those that, Lord, just even this week, we've heard of a, a, a decent little inheritance that someone's leaving to the church, Lord several thousand dollars and we pray that we would be good stewards of the money that you give us and I'm, I don't just mean as a church Lord I mean as Christians that we would be generous this year not just buying gifts that our kids won't play with <laughs> but looking for real needs of course being generous to our own families but looking for needs as well God the greatest need in all the world is for people to know Jesus and for those of us that know you we praise you this morning that you have filled our need, that you have been generous to us. You have shared your son with me, and I get to rejoice in forgiveness and peace and joy that passes all understanding. And it's, it's my home in eternity one day that you've prepared for me. You've shared your very home in heaven. One day you're gonna share it with me, and I can't wait, God. And so I pray that if there are people here today that have not stepped into that sharing relationship with Jesus, they'd call on the name of Jesus, repent of their sins, and be saved. Say, God, I, for, I, I ask that you forgive my sin. I believe you died on the cross and you arose again and you're coming back. And I'm asking you to come back for me. I also pray for those that may not have a church home. If they want to make Piper in their church family, they'd come forward and make that public today. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been Sermon Audio from Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton, Tennessee. For more information on how you can get connected with PBC, please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com.